Okay, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to uh, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you would like a free one, just uh, let us know. We will run. We would love to gift one to you. We have some in the back. Uh, so, all right, I think talking about where we were last week will help set, set the stage for the importance of where we're going, uh, not only this week, but really the next couple weeks. Uh, Matthew 18 opens with a question from the disciples to Jesus. Uh, they come in and, and they ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, and this is a question that we will find when we spend time in the Gospels. They, they tend to ask Jesus this quite a bit. Uh, and really what they're trying to get at is, how can I make sure that I am great in your kingdom? Uh, and now, that could either be because of um, impure motives of just, hey, I just want to be important. Uh, or it could come from this very genuine and authentic place in their lives of saying, I want to honor you as much as I can uh, with everything. So how can I do this in a great way? And, and in fact, uh, in his incredible way, uh, Jesus uses their question to open a discourse into uh, really just a, a much deeper and a more uh, and give us more helpful insights uh, first on how we enter his kingdom and then secondly uh, what we're going to find is he's going to teach us about how we treat one another uh, in that kingdom and and he does this by, by by bringing a child before them and he says this he says unless you turn and you become like children uh, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven uh, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. And, and so we said that there's this principle at play in, order, in that uh, in, in order to be a citizen in the kingdom, you have to be a child of the king. Uh, that's the way uh, this works. And, and we become children of the king by first uh, humbling ourselves uh, and, and recognizing our complete dependence on God for our salvation. Uh, that he is our our only hope, and and we can't demand him uh, to be merciful towards us because uh, we we have no defense for our own sinfulness, uh, and so so instead we we come to him uh, in humility, claiming our our desperate need for his forgiveness and for his love, and and to work through, uh, and for him to work through Jesus for the, our benefit and. And this is, uh, was the first of, of many hard things that Jesus is going to tell us over the next couple weeks. Because uh, when, but I think when we remove ourselves from the emotions, uh, the emotions of, of this equation, we can see that the hard choice of humility, of actually humbling ourselves before God, uh, is actually the best choice available since it draws us right into the heart of the Father. And... Uh, which is why the warnings of, of verses 5 and 6 last week were, were, were especially important because uh, we get to understand that if we are children of the king, we get to experience the protection of our king. Uh, and, and this is great news for us because God is very serious about his protection over us and he secures us in himself. And, uh, and we ended our time asking this, this important question. Uh, we just said, are, are you a child of the king? And the hard truth is that if you aren't, then the rest of our time in this series, and really the entirety of the Bible, 
It's just this practice in, in moral living. Uh, but it will never bring you to a joy-filled life with God. Uh, if you're not a child of the King, you will never experience uh, true peace, true love, true joy. Because uh, that only comes through Jesus. Now, however, if you are found in Christ, uh, then, then what comes next is very important to us because, um, because it talks about how we are to treat and care for one another as we remember, as we constantly remember the ways that, that God has cared for us in Christ. Uh, and so what Jesus tells us to do here uh, will affect us in, in personal and corporate ways so that we can better glorify God with our lives. And so uh, when, when now I, I preface all of that to say the things that he will tell us in these coming weeks, there will be parts of you that say, that's no, that I would rather do that a different way. Uh, but we have to come to this point of saying, okay, God, we believe in faith that you have told us the healthiest way to live. Not the easiest way to live, but the healthiest way to live. That you reveal to us in your word a way to live that glorifies you and benefits others. So when in doubt, I want to have a faith that has grown to the point where I believe you more than I believe my own comfort. Okay, so that, that's kind of where we're heading. So let's stop, uh, let's pray, and then we'll get going into our, this next section. Father, we are very thankful this morning that you have rescued us that you have redeemed us, that you have sent your Son to be our great prize. And we pray this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be able to lean into you, that we would be able to see and hear your voice. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. All right, so, so the rest of chapter 18 uh, really brings us four instructions. We're going to deal with two today. We'll deal with two next week. And what we're going to see in these actions are for the advantage of our own lives, but also, again, for the benefit of others. And now where we start in verse 7, uh, 7 through 9 in particular, is going to link us uh, to this warning that Jesus just told us about last week uh, in verses 5 and 6, in that uh, we are not to lead one another into sin. And I know you're like, well, that's a novel idea, right? That we wouldn't lead one another into sin. But he, Jesus is very serious about it. In fact, this comes with this very serious warning of judgment for those who do lead one another uh, into sin. In fact, Jesus will say, uh, it would be better to have a millstone fastened around your neck and to be drowned into the sea uh, than to lead one of his little ones into sin. Now, again, we, we, we talked about this. Anytime uh, we read from this point forward... Uh, about little ones or children, Jesus is referring to young believers. Okay, he's not just talking about kids, even though you shouldn't lead your children into sin. Okay, you shouldn't be like, hey, let's go rob a bank today. Uh, you know, that's that's not a good idea because they're not open. So, um, but not that I would know that. Um, so, so what what he what he does next is what we get to begin chewing on. He's going to talk about how believers care for one another and this is the first place we go in your talk notes uh, that that we are called to protect one another. We are called to protect one another. Verse 7 in chapter 18. He says, "Woe to the world for temptations to sin." Okay? Exclamation point. Okay? "Woe to the world for temptations to sin." For it is necessary that temptations come. If you like to circle in your Bible, we're going to deal with that little section here in a moment. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom 
the temptation comes. So, so as children of God, we are part of a spiritual family, and we are called to protect one another from sin and temptation. Now, primarily, we call this accountability, right? We hold one another accountable to the standard of the gospel. Um, and, and Jesus speaks solemnly here about the dangers and temptations to sin, but, but he says something rather interesting to me in, in verse 7. Uh, he says that, that we are to not give in to temptation since that leads us to sin, but at the same time, he says it's, what's the word he uses? Necessary uh, for us to deal with temptation. And now, it dawns on me that wouldn't it just be easier if we didn't deal with temptation, right? Am I, am I the first person ever to come up with this thought, right? You're like, well, I, God, I don't mean to tell you how to do your job, um, but if you remove that temptation thing from me, I wouldn't sin, right? Uh, and and, and he looks at me and he says, that's sound logic, idiot, no. Um, but, but, but it sounds to me that if temptation doesn't come, then sin doesn't where it's ugly head, but maybe, maybe, and this is what I think Jesus is telling us, he says it's necessary that temptation comes. So the question on the table is why? What are the benefits of temptation, if, if we could put it that way? And I believe firmly temptation comes so that we can see Jesus as our deliverer. That we can see Jesus as our way out. In fact, in our own strength, and maybe you've dealt with this, in our own strength we can fight temptation to a certain point, but eventually we become very susceptible uh, to giving in, right? But temptation exists, okay? And I know this is going to sound strange, uh, but temptation exists to reveal our ongoing and our desperate need for the deliverance of God. It's this constant reminder that whatever this temptation may be, and, and now we could go, we could spend some time in this room and we could try to say, hey, what are you most tempted by? Uh, in fact, that'd be a fun game to play, right? Let's start with you. Uh, no, um, and then all of a sudden, there's like this whole side just kind of, I got a phone call, I got to go. Um, but, but it serves as this reminder that there are lesser things in this world that we are tempted to do when God brings us so much more and God offers so much greater. And, and so it, it clings to him as our source of, of satisfaction and our source of Deliverance, which is why there's such a stern warning about and, and about the just judgment that comes when we lead one another into sin or, or allow sin to take root, uh, especially in a believer's life, unrepentant, where we don't hold each other accountable to that. And so, so we're to protect one another through accountability. And, and one of the ways we do this, and this is the one of the ways I believe we do this here is that we are selflessly, and this is your talk notes, we are selflessly concerned about each other's holiness. Selflessly concerned about, our, about each other's holiness. And you're like, wait, does that mean people kind of know what's going on in my life? Does it, does it mean that, that they know the junk that's in there? Yes. We are selflessly concerned about that. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 24 says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another uh, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as uh, the habit of some, uh, but encouraging one another all the more as you, as you see the day drawing near. That day being Christ's Christ return. 
Okay? So, so we hold one another accountable. And somebody's like, oh, well, isn't that, don't you only use that verse for like Visitor Sunday at churches um, where you're like, hey, you should be here all the time. Uh, but, and I think there is a case to be made about being in the fellowship. But, but, but here's what I know is that um, there are levels of accountability that you have in your life. And as believers, you should have deep and abiding relationships that provide both accountability and encouragement and challenge. And, and so, so we don't play games when, when sin is present. We, we in, very much in love hold each other accountable since, since our desire should be to grow more and more and more in holiness with each passing day. And this, this, this means at times we reach out and we do the hard thing in declaring concern when you have a brother or you have a sister in Christ who is choosing lesser than the best than life with God. And you're like, well, okay, so, but what if it's just a little sin? What if it's just a little thing? You're like, no, no. Has God called us to the best or just a little bit better than the worst? He's called us to a best life. And so, so here, here's an important point point, though, uh, is that, that we will rarely stumble into accountability just by showing up to a church service. You with? Because here's the, the illusion of what happens in this room, is that we are all holding each other accountable in life. But let's just ask this, and I'm not going to ask this out loud, but, but when was the last time you saw any of these other people? Was it last Sunday? Pretty much. So you will never stumble into accountability just by showing up to a church. Uh, You will, however, stumble into accountability by being part of people's lives and doing life with them and taking the risk of being vulnerable with them then earning the right to speak truth into one another's lives. Now, this isn't about, hey, you need to spend more time here before and after church. Uh, This is about you need to be involved in other believers' lives uh, so that we can pursue holiness together. And so so, this takes work. And so the question is, uh, how does this type of concern grow itself in the church, right? How can we become selflessly concerned with the holiness of others? Well, it begins and it ends really with you that you would be radically committed to your own holiness. And that, that's, this is what we're going to find. In fact, Jesus is going to say something here that you're like, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Uh, I really do think he's off his rocker here. Because this is what he says. We are radically committed to our own holiness. Verse number 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. And somebody just laughed, right? Yeah. That's funny, right? You're like, that's ludicrous. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Okay, so this this is what David Platt says about this. He says, Jesus speaks of cutting off our hands and our feet and tearing out our eyes if necessary in order to fight sin. This is obviously strong figurative language aimed at making us realize that drastic action is necessary to overcome temptation. He says that you wouldn't play games with it. In fact, Jesus isn't 
literally calling us to get rid of our body parts. And everybody's like, okay, good, because I really like my right eye. Um, but in fact, he's not literally telling us to remove, get rid of our body parts since that would fail to deal with the root of sin, which is the heart. Okay, and This is the connection Jesus always makes with any time our sinfulness is in play. He says, the first place you look isn't your hands, and it's not your feet, and it's not your eye. It's here in your heart. He says, you need to root that out, because that's where those things live. And so he's emphasizing the seriousness and violence that should characterize our battle with sin. Instead of flirting with sin, we should destroy it. If something is leading us to sin, we should get rid of it. And so when, now here's what's happening. When we are not serious about the effects of our sins, it's like we've decided to, to leash it like we would a pet. Right? Have you ever walked with a, with a dog? Rarely are you dragging it, right? It's, it's kind of leading. But what we think is that, okay, um, we think the longer that this sin is on the leash, the more likely it will become to submit to us rather than the other way around. And, and so, so we think we can tame it. We think we can uh, play with it while uh, not realizing that it is always in control. It is always leading you. And so, so some of us, we will, we will walk with, with sin leashed and we'll think of it like a, like a little dog. Uh, like, like Nancy has, has a Yorkie. Is it Yorkie? Um, anyway, it's a dog that can be carried off by a hawk. Okay, that, that's what I think is going to happen one day. Like, like all of a sudden, that dog's going to be outside, and a hawk's going to go, and just, and we're like, oh, there Tinkerbell goes. Um, but, but, but we think of it as, as this small dog, and this is what we say, okay? And this is, tell me if you don't do this at times. Well, it's just, maybe it's a small sin. God, it's, it's not as bad as other sins that are out there. And so we think of our sin as, as a Yorkie, but what we don't realize is that it's not. It's a wolf. I was going to try to have a wolf out here this weekend, but apparently Missy says that's not feasible. Um, but but it's, it's a wolf. And now here's what we know. You put a wolf on a leash, eventually it wants to eat you. Eventually it does. And you say, hey, I can control this. Because it's connected to my hand here. I can, I can manage this. And that's exactly what sin is. It's a wolf. It will never be domesticated. It'll never curl up to you because eventually it wants to devour you. And that's how we treat... That's why, that's why Jesus is so violent against sin here. He says, you have to do whatever you can to root it out, to put it to death. Because eventually it will try to ruin you. And here's what I know. People never set out to ruin their lives. But we make these decisions. And then those decisions compound and compound and compound and compound. Before eventually we know we've been just chewed up. We are left bloody. And the good news, the beautiful news of the gospel, is that no matter how much you've been chewed up, you are not outside the reach of the gospel. No matter how far you've fallen, no matter how many wounds you have, no matter how much regret you carry from day to day to day, that Jesus is more than enough to overcome all those things. In fact, James Boyce says, Sin is so serious that any inclination toward it might, uh, must be dealt with radically. And so here's what we know. If we are radically committed to our own holiness, then we can be selflessly concerned 
about the holiness of, of others uh, in Christ. That, that if we're casual, if we're casual about our own sin, on the other hand, we will become very casual about the sins that run rampant in the body. That we protect one another by understanding that holiness is to be pursued and sin is not to be tolerated in each other's lives. And when I say that, the walls start to build. Well, who were they to tell me I can't do whatever it is that I'm doing? Right? Doesn't that seem invasive? Doesn't that seem like they're overstepping their bounds? Biblically, no. When sin is present, the believer says, No, hey, hey, I'm not, I'm not calling you out to ruin you or to, to, uh, to embarrass you. I'm calling you out because God has something so much greater for you. And so our pursuit is to protect one another. And as we battle, we battle alongside one another. And at times we stand before a person who is weaker in the faith. And we say, let me help you protect yourself. And then number two, this is going to go to verses 10 through 14. We, we love one another. And I know that sounds like a novel thought, that, that the church would love one another. You know, but I think uh, there's been many moments in my life, especially, that I'm like, I don't even think the church likes one another, alone loves one another. And I'm not talking just denominationally. I'm talking about inside a room with believers uh, that we constantly spend time with. You're like, I don't know where love is prevalent in this place. But that's not here. That's another place I was at. Uh, so so we, we love one another. We, we must, must, must have a love for, for one another where if, uh, where if and when one of us goes wayward, um, then those who are in the fold would spend time and effort searching for them and bringing them back into the fold. In fact, uh, to teach this, Jesus brings us a parable. It's interesting the way he sets this up, because next week we'll follow the same logic. Jesus will give a demand, and then he'll give us a parable. Um, but, but he says this in verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, he's not just talking about kids. He's talking about young believers in the faith. Uh, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so, so let's address verse 10 quickly uh, because it's helpful, but no doctrine should be created because of it. Uh, because this verse is, a, is one of those verses where we get the notion that we all have guardian angels, um, that there's a Clarence who's just trying to work um, for his wings, you know, and so you have a, it's a wonderful life thing going on in your, in your life all the time and you have a guardian angel. Uh, now, biblically, that's not the case. Okay, uh, but it's also not together uh, a flat-out lie. Okay, so so basically, the Bible has much to say about angels. Uh, in fact, uh, and the Bible has actually has much to say about the roles that the angel play, angels play in, in God's purposes. Uh, but it never says that there's a corresponding number of angels and Christians. 
Okay, so I know some of you are like, well, I really wanted my own. That would be fun. Uh, but, but it doesn't work that way. Uh, however, angels certainly protect God's children in Scripture. Uh, I can just take you to a couple places. Uh, uh, Peter is in prison in Acts chapter 12, and an angel of the Lord comes in and opens the gates uh, and lets them out. Uh, maybe one of the most famous ones is, is Daniel in the lion's den, right? Uh, where Daniel is thrown into a pit of lions, but an angel comes and protects Daniel from being eaten by lions. Okay, That's not an everyday occurrence. Uh, you throw yourself into a pit with lions, more than likely you're going to end up eaten. I'm just letting you know. Um, but but there's, another, uh, there's a number of other examples uh, where angels carry out God's work in a variety of ways. In fact, uh, it's, it's very likely that God uses his angels in very similar sorts today, uh, whether we acknowledge it or not, uh, that there are, uh, as, as Hebrews 1 says, that there are ministering spirits sent out to serve God's people. Okay, uh, and so, so to use a basketball term, uh, the, the angels are, are in zone coverage, uh, not man-to-man. Okay, that's the way this works. Okay, so we have angels that, that are working here. So, so you, may, you may be wondering why the Bible's teaching on angels is important. Uh, and you're, or maybe you're like, okay, can you just move on from this? Uh, but but here's, here's what we need to know. Consider this, this thought. If the Father has angelic attendants that he sends out to serve and to protect his children, then how much more should we love and serve and protect his kids? And that's how much he cares. He has created beings to worship him and to serve uh, his kids. So how much more urgent should we be in helping our love for one another? That is, that if God cares enough about his children to command angels to attend to their needs, how can we remain indifferent to our fellow believers? How can we do that? You, you can't. That's the answer. That's the point of this parable. We are to look and how God has met us in our wondering. And then we go in His love to search those who are wanderers. Really both inside and outside the family. Inside and outside the family of God. So, so, so it's not angels who are important in this passage. They may be interceding on behalf of the workers, of the weak and the wandering Christians. Uh, but what's really important here is that we would see how God is compared to the shepherd who seeks just the one that goes away and what he does for them. And so as we grow in Christ, right, as we grow in our holiness, we see God's treatment of us and, and we should be motivated to repeat uh, in our relationships, especially with other believers, we are to love one another in the light of the Father's love. So we just respond in similar ways that He's responded to us. And so you say, well, how has He responded to us? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you some things to fill in. Number one, God cares for us individually. God cares for us individually. That, that He calls you by name. It's an incredible thought. God of the universe would call you by name. But not only that, there's this beautiful passage that, that he has numbered the hairs on your head. Not, not that he knows the numbers of hair on your head, but that he has numbered them. 
That's how intimately involved he is with you. He has no obligation to grant you mercy. And yet, out of his great love for you, he pursues you relentlessly. Number two, God understands our weaknesses. God understands our weaknesses. The wonderful thing is that God does not berate you for being dumb and sinful. Now, he doesn't tolerate it. He says, all that sin, my wrath burns against it. Uh, That's one of the beauties of Christ, is that he has become our substitution. But he doesn't, he he, he remembers this. It's in Psalm 103, verse 14. Uh, He knows that how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. He knows that about you and me. And yet He still works in our direction. He doesn't give us freedom to walk in sin, but rather He allows us to see His great heart and His understanding, which uh, reveals His steadfastness uh, in, in walking with us as we grow up in Christ. Number three, God seeks us when we stray. God seeks us when when we stray. And one of the ways He does this is through the local church. That we would have relationships with one another that when we see someone has strayed. And I'm not talking about someone's been gone for three weeks, maybe we should send them a text, right? But that when we see a fellow believer wandering into dangerous places. Now here's what we know about sheep. There's some of the most ignorant uh, animals in all of God's creation. They can be sitting, they can be sitting in a green pasture. They can be drinking great, satisfying water. And then they can just walk right away from that. And they can go into stagnant waters. And they can go into dangerous places where there are predators lurking. Not to just mess with them, but again, to devour them. And yet God goes in search of that one and He says... That's your job too. If you're serious about displaying my great worth in this world, you would go to those places and you would help bring them back to the fold. Now here's, what we've, here's the mistake we've largely made in the church today. We said, hey, we live in this bubble. And anyone that lives outside that bubble, we don't go searching. So if you were inside the bubble at one time and you left the bubble, well, that's tough luck for you. Because we don't go out there. And this is what we find constantly through the gospel. Is that Jesus goes right into those places. And he says, my heart for you is the, the love of Christ compels me towards you. God seeks us when we stray. We should remember, God, God does not wait for us to come to him because we wouldn't. We wouldn't. In fact, Romans uh, chapter 3 says there's, there's no one who seeks God. There's no one who understands Him. But, as Romans 5 chapter 8 will say, I'm sorry, Romans 5 verse 8 would say, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So He seeks us when we stray. Number four, God rejoices when we repent and we return to Him. God rejoices over that. He celebrates that. Uh, never, and here's what you need to know about that. Never think that if you go back to God, you will find Him rep- 
reproachful or angry or distant or vindictive. He doesn't play the same games that we humans play. Okay? He doesn't. In fact, everything God has done for you is for your salvation. And no one in all the universe would be happier with your repentance than God. And you say, well, you don't know what I've done. And I don't have to. I don't have to. Because there is not anything you have done that separates you from God and Christ. There's nothing. So if this is, if this is how God treats us, then Jesus is telling us that that same kind of love should go toward one of the little ones who have wandered off. Okay? So, so we are to protect one another and we are to love one another. We are to make sure that we stay in community with one another because that's, that's some of the easiest ways to build holiness in our lives. Like I, I love when I get to sit with people that I'm doing life with and we just talk about the things of God. And it's not like, hey guys, it's Saturday night. Let's have Bible study. Because right? uh, some of you are like, that's weird. And then I'm like, why do you think that's weird? All right? But when you sit down with someone and you're encouraged by them and you're challenged by them and, and you, you see something in their heart for God that you say, God, help me grow in that way. Let, let's, start, let's start wrapping this up. This is a good place to stop. Um, because we need, to, we need to stop. We need to consider what we're being asked to do in our treatment with one another. We are to protect. We are to love one another. We protect by playing a role in each other's pursuit of holiness. And we show love in that, in those moments of wondering. Okay? In those moments of wondering, we go searching for one another to help them realize how dangerous life is outside the fold. And then how much more rewarding it is inside. And now here, here's the hard part. And again, we're going to see this really at play next week. We are called to live this way, but there will be times when we convince ourselves that their issues are exactly that, theirs. God, I, I emotionally can't deal with their life right now. God, I physically don't want to spend time with them right now. God, haven't you seen what they've been doing? And God says, I believe firmly in the Bible, that when we choose to play that game, we find ourselves wondering as well. We find ourselves separating ourselves outside of community. And the hard part is, is that because we've been shown the mercy of God through Jesus, that we would constantly pursue that in other people's lives. Whether we believe they deserve it or not, right? Well, if they would act more Christian-y, then maybe I would be able to spend more time with them. And that's not the way it works. He says we are a family. He goes, so we protect one another, even with the little ones. And I wonder... Actually, I don't wonder, because it's plagued me this week. I'll be honest with you. It's plagued me with this week, because I've asked 
the Holy Spirit to reveal to me those people that I've allowed just to go because it was easier to not pursue them in their wondering. And there are names after names after names after names, and then there are people currently where God is saying, hey, you need to remind them that I want the best for them, not, not just what they're settling for. And I'm like, but that's, that's hard. That's going to be uncomfortable. And he says, but is it still right? Is it still the right move? And I'm like, well, yes, but... He goes, no, no, no. Is it still the right move? Yes, yeah, yes, it is. But he goes, no, 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 no. Is it still the right move? Yes. Okay. Because here's what we know about church. It's easy to come in. It's easy to sit. It's easy to shake hands. It's easy to high five. And it's easy to walk out. In fact, some of us have done that and we've never taken that next step in community. Never once. We've never, we're not fostering relationships that build accountability. We're not trying to spur one another on. You're, you're just kind of coming in and jesting and then walking out. And God says, that's not the way the church... It's not, now, it might be the way the church is designed here in America today. I come in, consume it, and then leave. But that's not the way it's, ex- it's supposed to exist. The church very simply is a family. It's a body that works with one another, that invests in one another, that battles with one another, that loves with one another, that fails with one another, that gets back up and walks in grace with one another. That's the church. And my prayer over these next couple of weeks is that God would refine our expectations of what that looks like. And that we would be able to step in holiness together. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Please stand with me. As we leave today, we want to make a couple things available to you. If you need prayer this morning, Corbett and Lacey are going to be up here. They want to pray with you. Maybe you want to wait until people file out um, because they, you might think that they're looking down on you, which they're not. They don't. Never mind. I was going to say a lot of inappropriate things there. I'm just going to edit all of it. If you need prayer this morning, we want to pray with you. If you need Jesus this morning, we want to celebrate with you. If you want to stop and remember what He has done through communion, that's available to you. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are thankful. We are mindful of your great love for us. What I pray this morning is that you would stir inside of us a deeper love for you and deeper love for each other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.